0: Welcome to the Amor Mundi podcast, a podcast from the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. Amor Mundi means love of the world. The purpose of this podcast is to explore ways of thinking together and loving the world in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. This is episode two. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center. And I'm here with Sheila Benabib. Uh, Shayla Ben-Habib is the Eugene Meyer Professor of Political Science and Philosophy at Yale University, the author of many books, including many on Hannah Arendt, and her most recent book, which we're going to be talking about today, is Exile, Statelessness, and Migration, Playing Chess with History from Hannah Arendt to Isaiah Berlin. Welcome, Shayla.
1: Uh, Good to be with you, Roger. Thank you for joining us.
0: No, oh, it's my pleasure. So this is a fascinating book, um, and there's so many different ways for me to, to get into it. I mean, one thing that became very clear in reading it is it's a very personal book for you. Or you have a, you have and you have a, a, an autobiographical note in the middle of the book or early on in the book. Can you just say a little bit about? Um, your own personal relation to this question of exile, statelessness, and migration, and, 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 and is that what sort of led you into the book or did that come separately?
1: I think there are always multiple motivations uh, or multiple roads that lead uh, a question to pick up, uh, and a scholar to pick up these uh, questions. and. Um, My own uh, family history, which I uh, talk about at the beginning of the book, is that we are Sephardic Jews who were expelled from uh, Spain as a result of the Inquisition of 1492, which gave the Jews either the option of converting to Catholicism or leaving. And my uh, uh, family history, my ancestors, uh, were uh, invited by the Ottoman Empire uh, to the eastern provinces of the Mediterranean. And uh, our earliest non-ancestor, Itzak ibn Habib, as far as we can trace it, first went to Jerusalem, and then to Rhodes, and then to Gallipoli and Salonika, which were, of course, for many centuries, in, um from the 16th to the 19th century these were really uh, centers of uh, Jewish learning culture and also very very cosmopolitan because it was the meeting place of people of many different uh, faiths and these were still under uh, Ottoman Ottoman rule now it may seem strange that this would have the the kind of lingering, lingering consequences, but uh, I really grew up uh, uh, with my mother recounting stories of uh, um, our life in Spain about which she probably knew some history, but it was also myth. But it's lived memory. You know, this is not actual uh, history. Uh, I am sure uh, there may be uh, mistakes or in this recalled memory, but it was a lived memory that was uh, transmitted transmitted to me. So exile is a theme that is very uh, real, but it's also real to me in the sense that it has, uh, it is part of the Jewish conception of galut, of not being uh, at home, not being in the uh, uh, Jewish homeland and in Palestine, etc. Now, uh, this, of course, is a much more religious and theological and con- cultural, cultural uh, concept. Um, and um, it, it I, I sense that in the thinkers uh, that I worked on in, uh, in this book, uh, there was an experience of exile, not just historically, but maybe also a sense of exile a sense of not being quite in the world okay despite the love of the world that went back to some deeper to some deeper sources and um i resonate uh, with that with that uh, very very strongly so in that sense uh, the book is more personal i think than anything else i have ever written really
0: yeah, I mean that that very much comes through, and and I think it it gives the book I a, 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 I don't know an energy that is really powerful, and uh, I really appreciate that. You you in telling the story, I mean it I think as as an American, it's it's hard not to immediately think, oh yeah, stories of our exile or how we got here, our migration is part of almost all Americans in some sense. You say in the book that. This experience that you've just described—the experience of exile, sometimes statelessness, and migration—has become, quote, a universal experience of humanity. Um, and and you you give some numbers. You say that you know we've gone up from 170 to 244 million migrants in the last 15 years, which is still only 3.4 percent of the world's population. But your point, if I understand it, is that. This experience of exile, sometimes statelessness, and migration is growing faster than any other segment of the population. You also talk a lot about refugees, which are growing faster. And that there's this real sense that um, one of the specific qualities of the modern world that we have to confront is this... well this the sense of exile uh, the sense of not being at home galut as you mentioned in the, in the jewish tradition ha, i mean is that you say universal i mean obviously not everybody feels it but is that the big, is that the problem that we're all facing is that the problem of the modern world there there
1: really is the question that in the last Uh, 40 40 years that the number of people moving from their country of birth to another country, so-called international migrants, right, have increased in number faster than the world's population. Although the absolute numbers of people living in countries other than that of their birth is only 3.4, as I point out, there is an acceleration of movement across borders. And this acceleration of movement across borders, be it for migration or be it in the condition of refugees, is in the first place giving rise to what, you know, in political science terms, maybe uh, we are familiar with as the contemporary crisis of the territorial state system, right? I mean, there is at the moment uh, hardly any liberal democracy on the face of the earth which is not engaging in some uh, cruel and exclusionary and xenophobic practices against um, migrants and refugees. And uh, when you look to to Europe, uh, Germany, that seemed to be an example with its decision to admit close to one million Syrian refugees, is now in a state of political turmoil with the emergence of a new right-wing uh, movement. Um, but also the left, I mean, the, uh, uh, the Linke Partei, the left party in Germany, is no more in agreement about this admission of refugees than the IFD. You look at the discourse of Brexit in the UK, uh, there is also the phenomenon of Lexit, the left case for Brexit, and at the centre of this left case for Brexit is also a sense of extreme disquiet with the question of refugees and migrants. I mean, I don't need to recount all the examples and look at what is happening in our country Uh, um, It is, I think, quite clear that the United States is violating the the condition of non-refoulement, according to the Geneva Conventions on Refugees. That is to say that to offer a safe place upon those who come to your territory and prove, prove the validity of their claims subsequently, the United States is basically extraterritorializing them to Tijuana, Mexico, and not even admitting them in the first place, which is what the Geneva Convention says states uh, should do. So, uh, there is this uh, surface phenomenon of what is going on around this this issue, this uh, intensification of migratory movements is bringing out the worst. I think, in a state system that is feeling very challenged and very very threatened. then there is uh, the the deeper questions uh, that we have been we have been facing, and um, although I don't talk about it in the book explicitly, but subsequently, a term that Sigmund uh, Baumann um, used in his sociology really has hit me, and this is the term of liquid modernity. Yes. Uh, Yeah, I mean, liquid modernity not only now in the sense of the absolute mobility of everything, right? I mean, the human body is the least mobile in a way, right? Money, uh, news, information, germs, fashion, everything moves across borders at the blink of an eye. And... um, it, this this also it gives one a sense that the parameters the parameters of our everyday life are so um, are so supple and are becoming so fast and so deterritorialized, you know, liquid means that in some ways are time space parameters. So I understand that are sort of melting and. Um, uh, thinkers like Arendt, uh, Adorno, uh, Benjamin, uh, Judith Clark—that is less well known than <laughs> uh, she deserves to be—in these, uh, in the course of these discussion, Hirschman, etc., uh, Isaiah Berlin. All these thinkers, I think, had a sense of um, both these dimensions, both uh, in terms of what's happening. Uh, politically in terms of the configuration of citizenship, nationality, and identity, but in the broader sense of what is happening when we sort of seem to have lost our sense of bear and how, how do we find something stable uh, in a world of liquid uh, modernity?
0: One of the things that really um, struck me in the book was you're turning back to um, a couple of essays, but one particularly by Moritz, Moritz Goldstein, their yeah. um, uh, Deutsch, the Parnass, or the German Jewish yes. Parnassus, um, which was written, I think, early, very early in the 20th century, um, right. and yet uh, you suggest, in some ways, and you're you're very aware of the potential. Um, questions that might be raised about such a claim is almost a kind of universal uh expression of what we're now 100 years later still talking about as this liquid uh sense of um uh, of exile and statelessness and homelessness uh becoming part of our lives um can you say a little bit about the the Goldstein essay and 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 wh- how you, how you came to put it so <laughs> Uh, front and center in the book?
1: Yes, yes, yes. I uh, first became aware of that essay, actually, because of a reference by Hannah Arendt. And I just followed followed the uh, footnotes. And um, the essay was written in uh, 1912, by the way. He's an extremely provocative writer, which... You might say at some level, he saw the failure of Jewish assimilation into German culture. But I think that would be too simple. And certainly neither Hannah Arendt nor Walter Benjamin uh, or nor Scholem, uh, who was very taken by that essay, read it that way. I think in what he was pointing out to, uh, Goldstein was pointing out to, was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, this haunting phrase that he uses, the ewig halb under the eternal half other, right? The eternal half other, a very haunting phrase. And the interesting thing is that you cannot complete the other half of the half, if you know what I mean, by some simplistic solutions of assimilating completely into the dominant culture and denying your own otherness. What Arendt will call the, uh, uh, the parvenu, right? You can't do it. You also can't do it by a simple nationalistic emergence uh, in your own people. Like Goldstein says, well, why don't I go to Palestine? Why am I here sitting in Europe mourning the fact that German culture does not really accept us uh, Jews? So he is uh, neither accepting the parvenu assimilationist alternative, nor is he accepting the nationalist Zionist alternative, which is, let's go to Palestine and we will be whole. No, he he doesn't accept that. And he says, I want to create, quote-unquote, a Jewish mode of writing and speck art in Europe itself. Now... From Arendt, we know okay, that the categories of the pariah and the parvenu are central to all her thinking about the politics of culture and cultural politics, right? That uh, the parvenu uh, um, is the one who assimilates and obliterates his or her sense of uh, uniqueness and otherness, and the pariah... Uh, escapes into a position of full otherness, as opposed to the self-conscious pariah, that does not, or is not able to create a kind of, create a a synergy, a discourse, a sprechart in Moritz Goldstein's terms. You know, when you think of Goldstein in the context of Arendt, you see how much continuity there is um, in their thought. But what I also find fascinating about Goldstein are two things. First, the concept of Europe. The concept of Europe that he, although he ends up immigrating to the United States and writes a subsequent essay about his first controversial essay, there is a concept of Europe that should be able to robustly accommodate and assimilate minorities, and what we call, and this is the second point, hyphenated identity. And um, I see more, it's Goldstein in that sense, as already at a very early period, opening up this question of a hyphenated identity. What does it mean uh, to be a Salman Rushdie? in the uh, UK, what does it mean uh, uh, to be, you know, an Orhan panop translated into, into uh, German? I mean, we in the United States are used to the concept of hyphenated identity because of the particular historical trajectory of the United States and what used to be one of the strengths, and I hope that it continues a kind yeah. of...
0: Can I ask you about that, Shayla? I mean,
1: yeah, sure, as, please, please.
0: As, as you well know, um, when RN first came to the United States, she was struck by this aspect that you were just talking about of the United States as a non-nation state, as she sometimes formulated it, and that it was a place she thought where, unlike in Germany, you could be both an American citizen and a Jew, uh, and 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 in other ways. I'm wondering if how, how, how much you, you, you credit that, that distinction she makes, whether you find the United States is, that, is it fair in your mind to call the United States a non-nation state, and, and is it um, changing, or, or how do you see that, that relationship?
1: I think that, is that the presence of that uh, civic culture of citizenship I think it's one of the most precious things that this country has and that is not all that is not threatened you know I have no difficulty saying for example speaking personally I'm an American citizen of Turkish Jewish origin there is no other in country in the world where I can say that in France I would be a French citizen but I would deny the other half of the equation okay some people I, have argued
0: that Germany has become, some states in Europe including Germany or maybe Canada have become states, non-nation states, is that, or you think it's really only well, the United States?
1: I think, I think that uh, Canada, um, Australia, I think that in Germany there is an important and healthy discussion going on about this issue. But it is not really, the historical experience is very recent. Although we all know the peculiarities of the German concept of the nation, is it a kulturnation, is it territorially bound, etc. But what is unique about the United about the United States is its capacity or was its capacity to create the sense of um, civic national as opposed to ethno-national identity? This does not mean, as we know from American history, there have always been nativist movements here. There have always been movements against immigrants, the know-nothings, or movements, you know, that we sort of know from history is when the Irish were black. These were part and parcel of the cultural cauldron, cooking here, you know. But on the other hand, somehow the institutions and the opening of the frontier, the American economy, the civil society, Created a, a, a different a, a different uh, kind of uh, identity and um, yeah I think Canada probably is very 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 uh, uh, close although the British French uh, rift in Canada also works in a different way but <clears throat> I think that seen from that perspective what we are going through now. Is um, uh, particularly with uh, the America <clears throat> First movement, uh, the xenophobic uh, um, uh, ideology of the Trump administration. It's a throwback to a 1930s conception of nationalism uh, that has also existed in this in this country, but it was never it was never absolutely. The dominant one.
0: Are, is there? Is there not a? I mean, you you seem you seem genuinely worried, and I think a lot of people are. Is there a? Is there an optimistic take to what's going on, which is that in some sense, this nativism came out of a citizen civic civic citizenship movement. We call it the Tea Party, and that it's engendered a resistance movement. Of citizenships around the country. I mean, is there, is this in some sense, can can we see uh, a revival of a kind of civic citizenship idea in the country going on right now, or or do you think it's more much more dangerous and and different than that?
1: Um, I don't quite consider this particularly the Tea Party movement, you know, but I don't know if we need to go into that, a civic citizenship movement. I will give you one example about the kind of discourse that is uh, worrying me. In addition to uh, the violation of international law concerning um, refugees, there is also actually a discourse developing that's been adumbrated by some intellectuals, against birthright citizenship. Okay? I'll right. uh, talk about anchor mothers. Um, now, birthright uh, citizenship, territorial citizenship used solely, um, is um, one of the uh, foundations, I think, of a uh, civic republican conception of identity because the claim is that the child that is born on the territory will grow up and will be socialized. And that child is like all others, a human being, uh, will be socialized into our institutions, etc. And I think that the worry about or the argument against birthright citizenship is that it's commodification. But I think those who argue against its commodification are also the same people who are not defending, let's say, something like uh, maybe a civil service of the kind that our old friend Benjamin Barber, for example, used to talk about, that youth uh, have some, some kind of a commitment to public service or civil service, a well-paid uh, one year where one could do this kind of community activism, community service. In other words, I uh, understand what is meant by worries about the decline of citizenship, et cetera, but I don't believe that this kind of moralistic putting the blame on the individual, rather than creating alternative institutions, is the correct thing. And I always remember you know, um, uh, Hannah Arendt's uh, worry uh, during the McCarthy years, when she was so concerned about her own background. I mean, she was never a communist, but her husband was an ex-communist, and she was close to the socialists, a lot of her friends were socialists, and how she was con- concerned and scared about denaturalization. right? Yeah, no, that's and, absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, so we have to we have to watch we have to watch uh, these uh, these uh, trends uh, uh, um, uh, of the of the current period. Yeah.
0: No, I, I think that's exactly right, and and that that your your mention of institutional responsibility here, as opposed to individuals alone, leads into the question that I really thought and you can tell me if this rings true to you, was the central question of your book. Um, And it's after you're talking about the Moritz Goldstein essay and a bit with Hannah Arendt and, and Adorno and others, you frame the question and you say, what must be the features of a democratic public sphere if it is to offer the eternally half others, the marginalized and the homeless ones, voice and sanctuary? And that seems to me the, the sort of political side of the question of the book. And then you write, this cannot be achieved through law and politics alone. It requires the cultivation of moral and political judgment of one's capacity to take the standpoint of the other. And this struck me as almost like a, a dividing line between some of the thinkers in the book, some who were more maybe law and politics, uh, mm-hmm. institutional thinkers, and some more cultural uh, thinkers or, um, and and I'm just wondering if that's a fair way to sort of, I mean, I don't think you organized the book per se that way, but I think of this as sort of, in my mind, it became the organizing question of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the interesting things is you sort of put Hannah Arendt on the side of the thinkers who say, that you can't achieve this through law and politics alone, and you go into her discussion of judgment and the evide to dank the expansive and large thinking um, based in Kant. Although, and certainly in her later work or in some of her work on, on revolution I'm thinking of, she really does think of constitutional, institutional structures as deeply important. So I'm wondering um, how you see this divide between whether we can Find, give voice and sanctuary to marginalized and homeless voices between law and politics on the one hand, and between uh, moral and political judgment on the other. Where do you, where do you, mm. how do you, how do you divide that question?
1: Mm. I really, I really like uh, like that uh, question and that observation, Roger. It's making me think about about uh, the organization of some of the thinkers in a new way. Um, Obviously, Arendt uh, is probably on both sides of the divide, and uh, one can never place her uh, in one context or another. And uh, but one can say that probably uh, thinkers like uh, Judith Clark and Albert Hirschman are more on the institutional, constitutional side, whereas thinkers like Aren't and despite all differences, Isaiah Berlin, Walter Benjamin have more uh, sensitivity to the more amorphous cultural issues that are also there uh, determining and influencing influencing uh, uh, politics. Um, uh, absolutely, um, I think in my own mind there is not a sharp divide but a kind of interaction that we need to pay a great deal of attention to. And maybe I can get at this uh, through Judith Klar's concept of legalism. It's very tempting to identify liberalism with legalism. The correct functioning of institutions that protect a Bill of Rights, that protect citizens' rights, uh, et cetera, uh, et cetera. And, uh, you know, that is not nothing. I mean, we need we need legalism uh, as well. But legalism is not the essence of, is not the only element of legitimacy in a vibrant uh, um, liberal democratic uh, culture. As uh, Shklar points out, in, uh, you know, she says, authoritarian regimes can also have Uh, the virtues of legalism. And this is something that is at times difficult for us to understand. Certainly, they don't respect human rights, but a rule of law versus rule by law, okay? Many of the authoritarian regimes of our time, from Singapore to Russia to Turkey, have rule by law, but not the rule of law, which I would put more on the side of a legality that is embedded in a legitimate, uh, in a democratic culture of legitimacy. Well, what else do we need? I mean, what else do we need uh, to, to complete this picture? Now, uh, obviously, we need civil society, a vibrant civil society, and a vibrant set of associations. If there is one criticism um, that I have made of Arendt over the years, is that her concept of the public f- sphere is sociologically underdeveloped, and that it doesn't give us this vibrant civil society associational life that's going to be you know, the institutional setting for any kind of uh, culture of uh, legitimacy. Uh, so, that's on the negative side. But what uh, uh, Arendt does uh, give us is this uh, attention to the question of judgment and as you know from the history of philosophy i mean this is one of the most difficult questions um to address and um uh, because it does not lend itself to a, a deductive systematization and Kant himself already identified the problem that if you want to give rules for the correct exercise of judgment, you're already exercising judgment, and you go in a vicious circle, you know, and you start chasing your your tail. But uh, aren't so something else in this concept of determinant judgment in Kant? And, of course, it is a fantastically, <laughs> fantastically original reading that departs from the text and maybe is not true to the text, but be that, be that as it may. I mean, um, Kant talks about aesthetic judgment, teleological judgment. Arendt wants to say, well, judgment is the essence of the political, and to some extent of the moral as well. And what does this judgment involve? And this is important for our times. Judgment involves the capacity to properly evaluate the particular when we no longer have shared universals, or the certainty of shared universals, when we no longer just simply subsume the particular under the uh, universal. Now, this happens particularly in times of crisis, and in times of deep polarization and contention in a political culture, as the one that we are going through right now, Uh, We just do not judge the same way. We don't. We don't agree on the particulars. We may pay lip service to the same generalities, but we just have such radically divergent intuitions about the particulars in a culture that is polarized that it becomes very, very dangerous. Then you know to have that common sense of legitimacy. So I think this is this is where you know our work as intellectuals, as public thinkers, as teachers, uh, comes in uh, in the job and in the work of. Uh, mediation I mean I know you take this you take this very seriously and you got into some pretty controversial <laughs> positions about you and I disagreed also in the Hannah on the Hannah Arendt Center but uh, this um, issue of um, uh, shared uh, shared judgment uh, is uh, is really um, uh, uh, Vital, vital. I think, and uh, it is. Um, it, it is not either or. It's not either a constitutional or liberal culture, or a vibrant political culture of judgment. Sometimes there can be clashes between them, but there can also be a happy, not happy, but a productive and fruitful interaction. Something I've called juris generativity. You know, following a little bit in the footsteps of. Robert cover where uh, um, legal controversies of a very deep kind uh, can have the capacity to generate good conversations and maybe see us judging from the standpoint of the other even if we don't agree uh, agree on it
0: yeah it was it was actually wonderful to see you talk about Robert cover in the book I, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Robert cover. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was. It's always fun to, to have him come back in. Um, so to come back to this question of of political versus um judgmental, to use the uh, approaches to the basic question that we're just to remind us that we're on is how do we give voice and sanctuary to marginalized and homeless eternal half others in. I guess what we would call it, liberal democratic societies in which the common sense has fallen apart, has broken apart. Um, I, You know, one, one, one idea that Arendt brings up and that you talk about in the book, I think with regard to um, Pershmann, if I'm not mistaken, is some sort of federalism. Uh, or the uh-huh. principle of federalism. I mean, it's different in Hirschmann than it is in, in Arendt, but but um, Arendt uh, certainly um, sees at the very cornerstone of the uh, the American uh, civic citizenship idea that you mentioned earlier, uh, what she calls the principle of, of federalism, the idea that there's no single sovereignty, that that the way you... Uh, that a you have to uh, have smaller I, smaller uh, smaller c- civic republics in which people engage, but also that the way to oppose anyone from becoming too powerful is by having uh, numerous centers of sovereignty. Um, mm-hmm. And and you talk about that with Hirschman as well, and and you go into the European Union as as one outgrowth of that. Is that is that principle of federalism something that you're, you're, you're optimistic about or interested in, or is, or is that actually a danger in your mind? I mean, obviously, it's a lot of people today assume federalism to be a, a conservative idea. I think Arendt is maybe one of the thinkers behind what we might call a, a liberal federalism or a federalism of the left.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I uh, continue to believe that, you know, federalism is, um, uh, a project uh, for the future that needs to be uh, enhanced and cultivated. But let me talk a little bit about Hirschman first, um, because he's uh, a puzzling figure to include, maybe along with R and uh, Adorno, Benjamin. Um, but uh, uh, of course, as we know from this fantastic biography, of uh, Hirschmann by Edelmann. Hirschmann is actually from Berlin. He was born in Berlin, but uh, um, he came under the influence of French education very early on, and he was a Bonafide socialist um, militant who who at a very young period um, uh, fought, at a very young period in his life, fought in the Spanish Civil War, and who also studied economics and administrative sciences and had this incredibly broad understanding and uh, vision. Uh, What's fascinating about Hirschman is that he develops the idea of economic federalism early on in his work as a result of the critique of predatory nation states like Germany using smaller states to fulfill their imperial ambitions, right? And uh, so, he he comes at this from this European experience, and then he's in the service of the U.S. Uh, government, the Office for the Reconstruction of Europe, and when he goes back uh, to, uh, to Europe, uh, he does institute the principle also, you know, of, um, uh, or he works for the principle of federalism within the you know, European context. I mean, you and I know Germany quite well, and we should not forget the fact that the German lender, the German federal system is basically inspired by the American project in post-war Germany. And it's, I think it's one of the more successful juridical and political systems uh within the within the european within the european context so rushman was fascinating because he brought in this economic uh knowledge and also that he remained uh, committed to a principle of european uh federalism uh together with arendt as Arendt did uh on uh, until uh, the very end now Within the U.S. context, I mean, we are dealing, of course, uh, uh, with a a 200-plus-year history of um, federalisms and and federalism. uh, um, I I mean, the the kind of the the history um, of this in the uh, United States is absolutely fascinating and at times troublesome, but. Uh, let us not think of federalism simply in terms of states' rights versus a federal authority or centralization. Let us think of federalism as the general project, as you put it, of dispersed sovereignty and a necessarily contentious, contentious um, conflict about, about sovereignty. I mean, uh, today, if you look at the way in which the states are challenging the emergency ruling of the Trump administration, or California is leading the the struggle in terms of clean uh, clean energy, um, there are so many there are so many uh, fantastic and interesting interesting examples. My colleague from Yale, with whom I have cooperated over the years, Judith Resnick uses a very good phrase. She calls it laws seepage. And what she has in mind here is the way in which laws cross not just international boundaries, but also state boundaries, domestic jurisdictions, and the interaction between the international, the transnational, and uh, and uh, domestic that um, uh, sometimes uh, city governments, for example, will uh, declare uh, themselves accepting of CEDAW, If I'm not mistaken, the San Francisco uh, city government has done that. So these kinds of interactions, which are part of the general project, general project of federalism, okay. So, uh, I think that uh, Arendt's critique of sovereignty, which uh, is something that has inspired me in, uh, greatly and is what I'm working on a little bit at the present, is uh, so much, so much on the mark, so much to the point about this. Now, of course, uh, um, uh, given the uh, kind of conflicts around economics that we saw. In the last decade and a half around the European Union, there is a kind of skepticism, uh, particularly about fiscal, about fiscal federalism, uh, etc. But I think that one should separate out uh, uh, conf- concrete conflicts and disagreements, which are the essence of politics. I mean, my friends who always talk about agonistic politics, yes, you know there will be agonistic politics within within the federal uh, project, there will be contention. But what I guess for me is the sine qua non is a universalist constitutional framework. And that's why I find also the European Union so interesting, and I think Arendt would have also given it her blessing. It's because it has the European Charter of Fundamental Rights and Freedoms, the European Convention on Human Rights, it has these two courts, Court of European Justice, the European Court of Human Rights, fighting, disagreeing, referring to each other, and then strong courts like the German-Italian Constitutional Court, uh, the British uh, House, higher court, coming into the conversation. It's uh, it's an interesting space. It's a fascinating space. And there are jurispathic moments, as Robert Cover would say, as well as generative moments in it.
0: No, that's that's great. I mean, you know, the as you well know, in thinking about these questions of federalism, Rn distinguishes between power and authority, and uh, I think what you're saying is that in Europe, the federalist project of the European Union has generated some power uh, and dispersed powers and dispersed um, uh, collectivities what i think is still missing in europe and which she called sort of the great good fortune of the united states was that something like a, a, a constitutionalist tradition got became worshiped became uh authoritative here and what seems not to have quite happened yet in europe which doesn't mean it won't happen is some sort of authority emerging um and that's that's the other part of 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 what it would mean to create a a workable system along those lines.
1: I agree. I agree, but I think that um, despite all uh, the uh, criticisms about uh, um, the financial blindness that dominated European politics, particularly of the Deutsche Bank, etc., I keep I keep thinking about this in our terms, if you wish, um, think of the Enlightenment. What, what is the Enlightenment without the British voice in it? What is the Enlightenment without David Hume? What is the Enlightenment without Locke? How can we think about modernity without Hobbes? And so, to me, what's happening right now is not just an institutional disagreement, about borders and politics and so on. You know, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a halving, it's a direction of the project of the European Enlightenment of which we are a part, of which we all continue, you know, continue to be, to be a part. And I just, uh, I just uh, would have preferred a kind of a Europe uh, with the British voice in it. Uh, Than without, and that's why Isaiah Berlin uh, sort of ends the book in a strange way. Uh, he's not a thinker uh, for whom I have as uh, um, close sympathy and understanding, but I I do find uh, his concept uh, or his defense of this notion of a, uh, that there, sometimes there can be no gain in a universe of values without some loss. You know, we talk about this in terms of pluralism, but it's also a deeper, I think it's a deeper thesis. It's a It's a thesis about the fact that all our values may not cohere, and that we have to realize that there may be losses, but that we have to be Courageous enough to be able to choose and you know face up uh, to those uh, to those kinds of uh, uh, losses, but a uh, uh, Berlin is in that sense. I mean, I think the quintessential figure who who sort of brings together the British and the German uh, romanticism and enlightenment and so on um, uh, all uh, all. Um, Together, you know, he, he may have been an odd one to end uh, to end the book with, also because, as you know, uh, he was very much against Hannah Arendt and somewhat manipulative in the British public sphere in turning people against her work. But, you know, emigre politics are not the best kind <laughs> of politics. <laughs> so well, what we have to learn from the emigres are other things.
0: I love that, and and I love the fact that you've, I think you brought together here, I mean, six or seven main emigre political, philosophical figures, but many other appear and reappear throughout the chapters um, in your attempt to, 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 to think this question of how do we give voice and sanctuary to a world in which exiles and immigrants are increasingly um, the the norm um, I'm gonna end just with one last question about the a metaphor that starts the book and comes back a few times which is chess um, I'm a chess player and I spend my time taking my son to chess tournaments around the country so this is on my mind and I love it when you when you do this you you start the book, and you write in a, in a beautiful uh, sentence, few if any images capture the poignancy of the 20th century better than, better than that of Hannah Arendt and Walter Benjamin playing chess during their French exile from 1933 to 1940. And you go on to, to talk a little bit about their chess games and how she taught her husband, uh, Heinrich Blücher, her then partner and later husband, I am Blucher to play chess, and then chess comes back again later as sort of a, a metaphor for sort of historical materialism in Benjamin's work. Why did you start the book with chess? I mean, is this is just—I I, I love it—and I, I I'm wondering how chess fits in with this question of exile and liquidity in your in your thinking.
1: I was so riveted and taken uh, by. This correspondence between R and Benjamin, when I did a long monographic essay on R and Benjamin and Adorno, I could not get it out of my mind. And then, as I kept doing the research for the thinkers treated in this book, that uh, Hirschman, Isaiah Berlin. Even Judith Clark's family, for crying out loud, you know, they are from Riga. They go to uh, they are part Jewish, part German, part German, part Russian. Jewish doctors. They go to Sweden. From Sweden, they go across uh, Japan, and some arrive uh, in New York. When I think about all these um, thinkers, the image that kept coming back to me was. That of a chessboard on which pieces were being moved. Now, chess is a very exact game and there are very precise rules of the game. Okay. So, um, uh, but what is not maybe perfect in the metaphor, but metaphors are metaphor, they don't need to be perfect, is that in this case, The rules of the game were not known to the players themselves, right? Uh, They were themselves, to some extent, uh, um, the uh, uh, chess pieces that were being moved. And they are being moved, and the game is beginning, but no one quite knows the outcome, because in some ways, also, they they don't quite know quite know the rules. I mean, when Walter Benjamin talks about the fact that it is a, a historical materialism that pretends to know to know the rules of what moves uh, the, the chess um, uh, pieces. Obviously, in the case of the metaphor in the book, is that uh, um, the players themselves uh, do not know the rules according to which they will be moved, although they are themselves also grabbing the um, uh, the initiative. So, I do that. That was that was the meaning that it had it had for me.
0: It's uh, it reminds me of Hannah Arendt's metaphor of thinking without a banister as well, uh, which seems to fit with very much with what you're saying. Um, well, Shaila, thank you so much for speaking with us on this podcast. A reminder, the book is called Exile, Statelessness and Migration by Shayla Benhabib. And uh, very much enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much, Shayla.
1: Thanks, Roger. This was a great conversation. Thank you.